Good morning. Leviticus 3, 1 through 7, 12, and 16 to 17. If your offering is a, is a fellowship offering, and you offer an animal from the herd, whether male or female, you are to present before the Lord an animal without defect. You are to lay your hand on the head of your offering and slaughter it at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall splash the blood against the sides of the altar. From the fellowship offering, you are to bring a food offering to the Lord, the internal organs and all the fat that is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins, and the long lobe of the liver, which you will remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons are to burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering that is lying on the burning wood. It is a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If you offer an animal from the flock as a fellowship offering to the Lord, you are to offer a male or female without defect. If you offer a lamb, you are to present it before the Lord. If your offering is a goat, you are to present it before the Lord. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering, a pleasing aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. You must not eat any fat or any blood. The word of the Lord. So I don't know all of you, and I certainly don't know uh, what's going on in all of your lives, but um, every single person in this room probably struggles with at least one of the following three things. First, uh, many of us struggle with a sense of personal identity and worth. So there are times throughout the week, uh, maybe even every day, where you wonder, you ask questions like, who am I? Do I matter? Does my presence in this world make a difference? Am I worthy of love and belonging? Now, if you're lucky, you have people in your life you can talk to about that. But more and more in our culture, we look for answers to those questions on Google or YouTube in the middle of the night. Personal identity and worth is a huge struggle for many of us. Uh, second, many of us struggle with a lack of feeling connected to other people in this world. We're lonely a lot of times, um, even more so in our culture where, where there's so much social fragmentation. We're, we're divided and we're siloed into our different little echo chambers and our tribes. Social fragmentation is a huge problem in our world. But thirdly, uh, a lot of us struggle with hope for the world. When I'm out and about during the week, um, I'm weird. I like to poll people. Uh, and one of the questions that I like to ask people is, do you feel more or less hopeful about the world today? And by far, the most common response I get goes something like this. People will say, well, I know that I'm supposed to say that I feel hopeful, but if I'm really being honest, I'd have to say that I'm not very hopeful about the state of our world today. Personal identity social fragmentation, hope for the world. These are three of the biggest struggles in our world today. This passage that we just read addresses all three of those things. Yeah, uh, we're in a series on the book of Leviticus. And um, I've been saying this every week. You know, Leviticus is very famous for being a rule book or a law book. But at its heart, Leviticus is really a book about transformation. 
God wants to transform the world. He wants to transform you. Leviticus is all about how that transformation happens. And it begins with a series of five offerings or sacrifices. Um, and on the surface, these things look like these really weird, primitive, bloody, barbaric rituals. And, and what in the world does any of this have to do with these three problems that we just mentioned? Everything. This um, week, we're looking at the third of these offerings. Each one of these offerings shows us something crucial about how the transformation process takes place. This week, we're looking at the third offering. In our um, translation, it's called the fellowship offering. But the Hebrew word, are you ready? It's shalamim. Can we say that? Shalamim. That's kind of fun to say, isn't it? Let's say it again. Shalamim. Does that word sound familiar? It comes from the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom means wholeness and flourishing. Shalom means that, uh, that a world that's falling apart is finally coming back together. And especially with regard to these three things that we just mentioned. When we understand this offering and practice what it shows us, it means three things for us. It means we're resting in a new identity. It means we're realizing a new society and it means we're rejoicing in a new hope. Resting in a new identity, realizing a new society, and rejoicing in a new hope. Let's take a look, okay? First, um, this offering means resting in a new identity. Um, are you guys up for a little background work? Here's the main thing you need to know about this offering. This was the only offering out of all five that the, the person who brought the offering got also got to eat some of it. The burnt offering, the whole thing goes to God. All the other offerings, the priests get to eat some, but this is the only offering that the worshiper, the person who brings the sacrifice, they get to eat some too. So if you look at the very end where it says, you must not eat any fat or any blood, that's basically God's talking to the person who brings the sacrifice, and he says, look, you're going to eat some of this. Now, now the fat, that belongs to God because the fat, that represents the best. It's like the fatty burnt ends. That's my favorite part. <laughs> the fat is the best. That belongs to God. Blood, that represents life. That obviously belongs to God. But God is saying, but you're going to eat some of this offering too. So this offering, the shalamim, is basically, it's a covenant meal. A covenant is an agreement in which two parties agree to live to certain conditions. And back then, they didn't have paper contracts. There was no such thing as DocuSign. So what they would do is they would cut an animal in half, walk between the pieces of the animal, and then they would say, if I fail to live up to my promise, may I be cut up like this animal? It was a way of acting out the penalty. If I fail to live up, may I be cut up? How's that for signing a contract? So what they would do is, after they enacted the covenant, what they would do is they would share a meal together. It was a covenant celebration meal. It was a way of celebrating the fact that they were now in covenant. And by the way, we do this all the time today. It's called a wedding feast. It's a way of celebrating the fact that we are in a covenant now. So the classic example of this is in Exodus chapter 24. In Exodus 24, God has just rescued Israel out of slavery, and he brings them to Mount Sinai. There's, and, and, and on Mount Sinai, God comes down 
on the mountain. There's thunder and fire and lightning. There's ten commandments. God makes a covenant with the people. And when he does that, it says that Moses wrote down all the words of the covenant in a book. And then Moses sacrificed burnt offerings and shalomim offerings. And then Moses read all of the terms of the covenant to the people. And they said, everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. And then what happened is Moses, he took some of the blood from these offerings and he said, behold, the blood of the covenant. Behold, the blood of the covenant. And then he splashed them with the blood. Do you realize what's happening? They're acting out the penalty. They're saying, if we fail to live up to everything we've just promised, may we be cut up like this animal. They are now in covenant, okay? But then the very next thing that happened after that is God invited Moses and the elders up onto the mountain. And in Exodus chapter 24, verses 10 through 11 say this. It says, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people. They beheld God and they ate and drank. Shalomim a covenant celebration meal, and it's all possible only because of the blood of the covenant. Now, that is a lot of background. So what does that mean for you and me today here in the 21st century? I've been reading a book recently called American Jesus by uh, a writer named Stephen Prothrow. He is a professor of American religion at Boston University. In fact, you might have seen him on TV because when all of the major networks want to have an expert uh, on American religion on, they'll bring Stephen Prothrow on to the show to talk about it. So he's an expert in religion in America. At the beginning of his book, he says that religion and spirituality in America is like a sprawling marketplace uh, with a huge menu of options. It, you can pick and choose and mix and match. It's designer spirituality, you know, a mashup. Um, the interesting thing in the beginning of his book, he says this, that in America, um, everybody, not just Christians, but Hindus, Jews, Buddhists, New Agers, even secular people, everybody um, appropriates Jesus for themselves. In other words, Jesus can be whatever you want him to be in the marketplace, whether that's a great ethical teacher or a self-help guru or a revolutionary activist or um, a political mascot or a personal assistant. In the marketplace, Jesus can be whatever you want him to be. But if we were to step out of the marketplace for just a moment and, and actually enter into the world of real history, on the night that, um, before Jesus was crucified, he had a meal with his disciples, and it says that he took a, a cup of wine, and he said, this is my blood of the covenant. Wait, what? He's pointing back to Moses, behold the blood of the covenant, and he's saying, that was pointing to me. That was talking about me. Listen, you know, you can have Jesus be whatever you want Jesus to be for you. You're perfectly free to do that, but understand if you do that that's not the real Jesus. You've got a made-up Jesus. The real Jesus said, if you really want to understand me, if you want to know who I really am and what I really mean for your life, then you have to understand that Moses and the Shalomim offerings, that all of that is pointing to me because my blood is the real blood of the covenant. And the only way you can have peace, 
Peace with God, peace with yourself, peace with each other. Uh, Everything that's falling apart is coming back together in me. So every single week, we serve communion here, the Lord's Supper. Why? Because Jesus was basically saying, look, this is the way we do shalomim from now on. My body and blood is your food and your drink. So that when we eat this meal, what we're doing is it's a way of saying, I need Jesus. You know, food doesn't do you any good. If, if you say, well, I think that that's fine for other people, but I don't really need that. No, you have to personally appropriate that for yourself. You have to rest in that. So for instance, if you look at verse 5, um, it's talking about the, the offering And it says that the shalamim, notice what it says, is supposed to be burnt on top of the burnt offering. Do you see that? The burnt offering is the sacrifice that gains acceptance with God. We looked at that in the first uh, week that we were looking at the offerings. That's Jesus. Jesus is the one who gains our acceptance with God uh, through his work on the cross. In other words, you see how it says the shalamim is resting on top of the burnt offering. In other words, instead of resting on our own performance for a sense of identity and worth, we're resting on Jesus and his performance for us. I mean, why are we so anxious about our own identity and sense of worth in this world? It's because every single one of us is resting our identity on something. Maybe it's career or achievement. Maybe it's um, romance or relationship. Maybe it's family or children. Maybe it's approval, whether of your peers or your parents. Maybe it's um, uh, financial security. Maybe it's politics, or maybe it's being a good person. But every single person is resting your identity on something. Whatever it is, we get into a covenant with those things. And the way it works is this. If we feel like we're living up, then we feel okay about ourselves. But if we fail to live up, we feel cut up. We start paying the penalty because if you rest your identity on something that can fall apart, then when, not if, but when it falls apart, you fall apart. Because, you, it, because it all depends on your performance. You're the one who has to live up. But if you rest your identity on Jesus and his performance for you, that's an identity that can never fall apart because it doesn't depend on you. So instead of us saying, if I fail to live up, may I be cut up? Jesus said, because you failed to live up, I was cut up. Literally, on the cross. Because he shed his blood. He paid the penalty for our failure to live up. And now our identity can be based not on anything we do or on anything we fail to do, but on what Jesus has already done for us. That is a radically new identity. And when you rest in that identity, you begin to get less anxious, less insecure, less angry, less ashamed. You're resting in a new identity. Eating this meal, shalamim. It's a way of resting in new identity. But secondly, um, eating this meal is a way of realizing a new society. If you were with us in the first, um, not the first week, but the, the first offering, when we were looking at the burnt offering, you may remember that there were different economic levels in that offering. So in other words, uh, if you were rich, you brought a bull. Um, or if you were not rich, but you had resources, you would bring a lamb or a goat. Um, If you didn't have any money at all, you would bring a bird. When you look at this offering, you notice there's no bird here. 
It's either a bull or a lamb or a goat. Why? I was trying to think of a word or a phrase that would really describe what's going on at the heart of this offering. And the best I could think of is this. This offering is all about a party. But even that doesn't really get to the heart of what's going on here. It's not just a party. It's a party. <laughs> because you've got a bull or a lamb or a goat, but no bird. Why? Because this was supposed to be a community meal, and you needed enough food to feed people. Because what's going on here is this is a backyard barbecue. It's a feast. That's what's happening here. But when they had this offering, they would invite the poor. They would invite the orphan. They would invite the widow. They would invite the immigrant. In fact, whenever someone was going to offer a Shalomim offering, the whole community would get really excited because they knew we are going to have a party. Now, here's what this means for us. God's vision for his people, his church, his community, is that, is that all of the social boundaries that normally would divide us, that his community would transcend those social boundaries. And even more than that, it means that, that if the radical welcome that we extend to one another in here should extend outside of us to the world around us, transcending social boundaries. So here's the question. Are you willing, or let me say it like this, are you unwilling to, to have certain people in your life? Are you unwilling to have certain people, to be in community with those people? Like I said, social fragmentation is a huge problem in our society, and it exists across pretty much any boundary line you can possibly imagine, whether it's class, race, gender, sexuality, politics, religion. Every single boundary line, we, we experience division across those boundary lines. What would have to happen in order to heal that fragmentation? The gospel shows us. Because if you've received, think about it, a new identity, not on the basis of anything you've done or failed to do, but on the basis of Jesus and what he's done for you, then you can never reject anyone else. You can never look down on anyone else because they failed to live up. The basis of your identity is Jesus was cut up because we failed to live up. If that's the basis of your identity now, that forms the basis of a whole new society. It's the realization of a completely new society. Now, here's what this looked like. In the ancient world, sharing a meal with someone was was a way of sending a social signal. But it sent a social signal not just to the person that you were eating with, but also to the whole community around you because in those tiny little villages, everybody could see who was eating with whom. It was like a big fishbowl. So to share a meal with someone, it sent a social signal that said, welcome, acceptance, approval, affirmation. By the way, this is why Jesus was constantly getting into trouble with the religious authorities. Because he was sharing meals with people, and not just people who would have been considered socially embarrassing, like your crazy Uncle Fred, who had a few too many drinks and got a little squiffy. Jesus was sharing meals that, that, that people would have considered a threat to the whole social fabric. Because he was eating with prostitutes. He was eating with tax collectors. Tax collectors were like financial predators. They were like collaborators with the Roman government. They were the oppressors. And Jesus was eating with them. And by eating with them, he was signaling that he accepted them. He welcomed them. It caused a social uproar. And I'll tell you what, you know, we like 
to think of ourselves and our culture as being very progressive, very tolerant, but we all know there are still certain social boundary lines that we are not to cross. And, and especially political lines. Because those people on that side, over there on that other side, they're a threat to the social fabric. So for instance, I was reading an article, um, came out a few years ago. Uh, it was written by a guy who used to be, uh, he was a field producer for The Daily Show back when Jon Stewart was the host of the show. Trevor Noah is the host now, but I don't know if you remember when Jon Stewart was the host. Um, the, this guy's job was to go out into the field and interview people who were going to be on the show. That meant that he was regularly talking to people who would have had radically different social, cultural, and political viewpoints from his own. And here's what he says um, early in the article. He said, I like to loathe people. It just feels so good. When I see them on TV or read their blogs, I sigh contentedly and I say, ah, it is now morally permissible for me to loathe this person. So imagine how irksome it was to have to deal with persons like that on a constant basis and discover that those persons in person generally weren't loathsome persons after all. In fact, to my great consternation and disappointment, I often liked them. And so he goes on to say that he was constantly meeting people that, that at least in theory he would have been inclined to hate them, to ridicule them, to mock them. But instead, the more he got to know them, the less he hated them, and the more he liked them. So that by the end of the article, here's what he says. I lived in a little bubble surrounded by people who think more or less like me. And when I considered people with opposing viewpoints, I would concoct an entire narrative of who they were and what they were like. And what they were like was yucko because I was not really interacting with them. I just thought I was because, hey, look, there they are on TV. Or there's that guy's post in the comments section. But that stuff doesn't count. Meeting people counts. Talking counts. Now, I have no idea if this guy is a Christian or not. But that is a perfect example of what the shalamim is supposed to do. It dissolves the hostilities. It dissolves the divisions. And by the way, that does not mean that we turn a blind eye to evil or injustice or sin. Yes, there's radical accountability at this meal. I mean, radical acceptance, but there's also radical accountability. You know, just because we affirm one thing about someone doesn't mean we're affirming everything about their life. Likewise, just because we critique one thing about somebody doesn't mean we're condemning the whole person. So if you look at Jesus, you'll notice he did both. Jesus was eating. He was sharing meals with people who were notorious sinners in his community. He was accepting them. He was affirming them. Boy, that really hacked off a lot of the religious conservatives. But at the same time, as, as affirming and as accepting as Jesus was, he, Jesus never shrank back from calling sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, calling them to repentance. He never shrank back from having those really difficult conversations with people about the sin in their lives and telling them that they needed a Savior. Jesus was always willing to have those kinds of conversations with people. The Shalomim is a party in which, yes, everyone is invited but in which there's also radical accountability. That, that we're all invited, but we're all held accountable here. When we eat this meal, the Lord's Supper, it's a way of saying, yes, 
we're all invited, but yes, we are all held accountable for the sin in our own lives. If we are not eating this meal in a way that the, that the welcome that we extend to one another here in the church is also being extended to people out in the community around us, then we're eating this meal in vain. So I would ask you again, are there people you're unwilling to have in your life? People you're unwilling to be in community with? Listen, I understand also that there are going to be extenuating circumstances um, which could make having a relationship with somebody difficult, if not impossible. But the question is not, is it difficult? The question is, are you willing? Are you willing? Eating this meal, shalamim, is not just resting in a new identity, it's realizing a new society, and that leads to our last point. It's not just resting in a new identity, it's realizing a new society, it's also rejoicing in a new hope. Because um, remember what we said, this meal, yes, it's a party. But, but this party wasn't just a one-off event. The, the shalamim was actually a foretaste of God's vision for the whole world. What is God's vision for the world? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not God destroying this world and then transporting souls up into some disembodied existence. I know a lot of, you know, religions and spiritual traditions, that's the way they talk. They'll talk about the real goal being us escaping this world into some purely spiritual existence. So that's why a lot of people very rightly will criticize religious people, especially Christians, because they see Christians who basically don't care about this world because they believe that God is going to destroy this world. But that is not the biblical vision. God's vision is a world made new. It's a world made whole. It's, a, it's feasting and drinking in the presence of God. Shalamim. It's a world where everything that's falling apart is coming back together. And I'll tell you what, that is probably one of the most heartbreaking and, and poignant yearnings in every single human heart and in our world today. Because our whole secular project over the last 300 years is completely focused on a world made new. We've, we've just taken God's vision for the world and we've renamed it progress. So our science, our technology, our medicine, our democracy, it's all focused on making this world that's falling apart into a world where everything is coming back together. Where do you think that vision comes from? Yes, we could say evolution. We could say, well, that's just, you know, our instinct for survival or our instinct to preserve our species. But that can't possibly explain the passion and the conviction that we feel that this world as we experience it today is not just unpleasant or inhospitable. It's wrong. And it needs to get set right. So that's why this is a meal, because we know that things need to be set right. Um, the Shalamim offering, it points to Exodus 24, eating and drinking in the presence of God. It points to itself, eating and drinking in the presence of God, and it says, this is a foretaste of God's vision for the world. That's why it's a meal, because it's eating, it's drinking. The biblical hope is a material hope, feasting, dancing, embracing so that when we eat this meal, it's a way of embracing God's vision for the world. It's a way of embodying the hope that God has called us to um, and that he gives us in the Bible. And the reason we can have that hope is because Jesus said, behold, my blood of the covenant. You know, in John chapter 2, the gospel of John, the account of Jesus's life, in chapter 2, it tells us that Jesus went to eat a meal. He, he was at a wedding feast, 
And, but they had a problem. They ran out of wine. Oops, party over. But fortunately, Jesus, the real master of the feast, was there, and it says that he turned six stone jars of water into the very best wine that anyone had ever tasted. Party on. The really interesting thing about that story is that John, the gospel writer, tells us that that was the very first miracle Jesus ever did in public. Think about that. Why would Jesus' inaugural miracle... You know, that's the thing, his calling card. Hey, everybody, this is what I'm all about. Why would his inaugural miracle be rescuing a party from running out of wine? Because it points to God's vision for the world. Eating and drinking in the presence of God, a world made new, a world where everything that's falling apart is coming back together. The really tragic thing about that story is that Jesus' mother, Mary, at one point, when they ran out of wine, she, she, she said, hey, Jesus, would you do something about this? And Jesus very enigmatically said, what's that got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Really odd thing to say until you realize that whenever Jesus talked about his hour, he was always talking about the hour of his death on the cross. In other words, Jesus was saying, yes, God's vision is that a world that's falling apart would come back together again. But the only way the world can come back together is if I fall apart on the cross. I mean, think about that, what that would have felt like for Jesus as he was sitting there at that party, watching everybody enjoying themselves, drinking the wine, having a great time, having a party, all the while Jesus knowing that, that not only is this a mere foretaste of the great ultimate feast to come, but that even more than that, knowing what it was going to cost him in order to get us to that feast. There was a great preacher once named Edmund Clowney who preached on John chapter 2, and and he said at one point that Jesus sat amidst the joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so that we who sit amidst all the world's sorrows could sip the coming joy. Friends, our world is full of sorrow right now, isn't it? Sorrow over the insecurity we feel about our own personal identity and worth. Sorrow that we feel over over the social fragmentation and and fractured nature of our world. Especially sorrow that we feel over the uncertainty that a world that feels like it's falling apart could ever come back together again. We feel that sorrow. Jesus drained the cup of sorrow on the cross so that we could sip the coming joy. And you know, in this world, it's really never more than a sip, is it? It it never really get more than a sip, but even a sip from Jesus' cup is worth far more than anything the world could ever possibly offer to us. We sip the coming joy. You could think about it like this. Um, If you've ever gone to an out-of-town wedding, you know how it is. You travel all day to get there, and then by the time you get to the ceremony, you're not only exhausted, you're starving. And then you got to sit through the ceremony, um, but then finally it's over, and you get to go to the reception, but you still can't eat yet because the, the bride and the groom are taking photos, and you're waiting for them to come, and you're just about ready to pass out. But before you pass out, just as you're about ready to keel over, out come some people in their little black bow ties, with their little trays, and they hand you a a little cracker with a piece of cheese on it, (laughs) maybe a little glass of wine or soda. And when you're that hungry, 
you never thought anything tasted so good. But what is it? It's a cracker. It's not a real meal, and you know it's not a real meal. It's not supposed to be a real meal, but it makes a difference, doesn't it? Why? Because not only does it take the edge off your hunger right now, it's also a foretaste of the feast that you know you're about to sit down to. You're sipping the coming joy. Friends, when we come to this table, this is the way we do shalamim now. Jesus said, this table is shalamim. This table is a world that's falling apart, is coming back together in me. So when we come to this table, and we're going to come to it in just a few minutes, I want to encourage you, rest in the new identity that's been granted to you through Jesus by his work for you on the cross. Rest in that. And, and, and let this meal transform you into a person who's able to extend a radical welcome, not just to the people here in this room, here in the church, but to extend a radical welcome to the people who are outside of the church in the world around you. And lastly, as you sip the coming joy in just a moment, let it make you into the kind of person who can go out into the world and be a foretaste of God's vision. In other words, somebody who can actually work for the good of this world right now because we know that when we do so, we are a foretaste of a world that's currently falling apart, but that one day is going to come all back together again in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you that you are a God who is deeply, entirely, 100% invested and committed to this world that you have created. You're invested and committed to individual persons. You're invested and committed to community. And we praise you that... Um, the deeper we get into uh, your word, the more riches and jewels that you show to us in that word. And so we thank you this morning for showing us how you are restoring our own sense of identity and worth, how you are restoring community and how you are restoring the whole world. Make us foretastes of that to the world around us this morning, Lord. Help us to rest in the identity that's been won for us by Jesus, to realize this new society, not just in here, but out in the world, and to rejoice and be foretastes of the hope that you give us through Christ, the one who's bringing all things back together again. For we pray it in his name. Amen.